So every Saturday night at 2 a.m. without clockwork, it was, you could send an alarm to it. It was amazing. We would wake up to gunshots every Saturday night, 2 a.m. It was unbelievable. Uh, so on Sunday morning when I would get to church, I would always be so tired. You could add to it in our particular neighborhood once you got the fireworks season, which was not the 4th of July. Uh, that would be Memorial Day to Labor Day. Uh, but also, you know, all the other high and holy holidays, Easter, you know, all of them, like they would all fireworks. And then you would also add to it on our particular street because our street was between two very busy streets and people would use our street as a cut through. You could add to it at night, the sound of screeching tires flying through, trying to cut people off. And then you could add to that because of the screeching tires. We lived in a neighborhood with some kids, the, the surprised uh, sound of the cars frame when it would hit the speed bump that it did not know was there in the middle of the night. And so you would just hear, and then that like all night, middle of the night, every Saturday night, all of that for us was God's preparation to live in Charlestown. (laughs) All of that was the Lord's preparation to live at 300 Medford Street, number three in Charlestown, Massachusetts. I love Charlestown, but Renee and I will talk because he lives down the street from me. I think my end is busier than his end, believe it or not. Uh, It is noisy on Medford Street. If you've never had the privilege of spending the night on Medford Street and you just want to stay up all night, come stay on Medford Street for a night. We have uh, fire trucks constantly. They come down our street. It used to be worse, uh, but it's gotten better since they reopened the one over, uh, over here on the side of the neighborhood. It's gotten better. Praise the Lord. We deal with fireworks, uh, random fireworks. The other day I was walking down the street and there were fireworks right by Renee's house. I literally just prayed for Renee that he wouldn't come out and kill a neighbor. Um, there are motorcycles. Last night, I swear, Evil Knievel was riding through the neighborhood. Did you hear it? It was unbelievable. I mean, this guy was doing laps around Alston Street. He had to be going up Bunker, down Medford Street. It was incredible. It sounded like a rocket going off all around our house right at bedtime. It was amazing. We also get cement trucks because we've got that spot where they pick up the cement dust or whatever that stuff's called. We hear semis. We hear Uh, we hear the motorcycles like crazy. I I mentioned those twice because when I was writing my notes, I didn't even realize I wrote it twice. It's that distracting for us. And then uh, we even get the boat noise where they bring those big boats in uh, to the Mystic River and they dump the scrap metal. I'm like, oh Jesus, I'm going to get lung cancer one day from breathing in the asbestos or whatever it is. This is our life. It is noisy. We live on a noise. Like, is it as noisy where you live as it is, Barb? Sort of, yeah, over in Lost Village, absolutely. Like, it is noisy. But I'll tell you the truth. The loudest place in my life is not my street. The loudest place in my life often is in my heart. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how loud your life is. My heart and my mind can be way louder than my life. Like, there's a lot going on between these ears. The other day, Natalie looked at me and goes, what are you thinking? And I was like, nothing. And she knew that was a straight-up lie. But I wasn't ready to talk about it. Like, I needed to work through it a little bit. The noisiest place is often in my heart, and it overflows to my mouth. I have coined a phrase in our life this year called being a 51% personality. There are some of us who have 51% personalities. What's that mean? What that means is in a room, whether it's two people or 100 people, a 51% personality is going to own 51% of the room or the conversation. Do you know anybody like this? 
My wife has been living with one for 17 years. Like, I can be, sadly, a 51% personality. Like, it's like, and, and here becomes the real issue. When you have two 51% personalities, there's only enough oxygen for like one at a time. And so somebody ends up getting irritated because they're not getting enough of the airtime in the room. And listen, the noisiness of my street is not nearly as noisy as the loudness and the volume of my heart that often overflows out of my mouth. How many for you, by show of hands, maybe I was the only one who raised hands earlier with Nick. By show of hands, I won't make you talk. How many of you are by nature more talkers than listeners? The talkers, raise your hand. Okay. How many, <laughs> how many of you are more listeners than talker? Drew, nice. Drew is one of the best listeners ever. He just processes. It's amazing. How many of you are noisy, like your heart is noisy? There's more noisy hearts even than talkers. That's incredible. How many of you, your heart is calm, you're relaxed? Nobody. Awesome. We're a church full of anxious, wild-hearted people. Uh, some of us, we have hearts like, that are like choppy. Like I described to you a couple weeks ago, the whale watching tour we went on. Your hearts are like the water going down to Plymouth to see the, the whales. Some of you, you have cal- like calm like a lake in the morning. Your hearts are calm. It's still. That's amazing. Here's, here's, I think, one of the big ideas today as we talk through a few more verses in James 1. We live in a noisy world. Our world is noisy, even more than the volume. Sometimes it's the intensity and the pace. We live in a noisy world that conditions us to have noisy hearts, which leads us to become noisy people. Paul talked about being a clanging cymbal or like a banging gong. Like we can, if, if we're loveless, we just are just racket. We just be racket. And we live in a, 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 a busy, loud, noisy world that conditions our hearts to be that way. And then it just overflows, making us noisy people. We're in the middle of a series called Untended Fires. We're looking at the book of James. The, 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 the title of the series comes from uh, a book in which Gail McDonald, who's a pastor's wife and Christian author here in Massachusetts, Gail McDonald once said, Untended fires soon die out and become a pile of ashes. And there are some things in our life that we need to just let burn out. There's some like noisiness to our life we need to let burn out. There's some other fires in our life we need to stoke up. If you don't keep them stoked up, they burn out. And there's some things that we need to keep stoked up and keep burning in our life. And so each week we're looking at some things that we need to let die out, burn out, burn down. Some things we need to stoke up. And so today we're looking at eight verses from James 1. Uh, we're going to look at 19 through 26. I think we'll have the verses up here, but if you've got your Bible... Uh, James 1, 19 through 26. So James, remember, is writing to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire who were scattered because it was basically either stay in Jerusalem and potentially lose your life for being a follower of Christ or scatter the Roman Empire to all cities throughout the empire. And he's writing to the ones who chose to scatter and, uh, and he's encouraging them. This, remember, we said this was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and the book of James is a lot like the book of Proverbs. And so uh, he's kind of giving big ideas. Now, today, some of these verses are going to sound very much like Proverbs. Let me read to you James 1, 19. Now, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness 
the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Stop there. Any, adver- any verses in there stand out to you, by the way, as we read that? Anything kind of stand out? Yeah, tell me. Which stands out, Carla? Which, what verse stood out to you? The last one? Yeah, good. Somebody else? 25 stands out for you, Barb. The one who looks on the law of liberty and perseveres. Ah, so good. Anything else stand out to anybody? 20 stands out. Um, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, Jesus, amen. Whew, me too. Anybody else? 19 for my wife. That's the one that always gets me. Quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk, we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. So um, I, lo- I love that. I love hearing how we can read the same passage of Scripture, by the way, and one verse, a, a different verse stand out to so many of us. Like, that just shows us that God speaks to us uh, all, but he speaks to each of us as well if we're listening, and I love that. So James is urging them. He's not mandating them this whole time. These aren't all imperative verbs necessarily. They're urging verbs. This is like my mom saying, you know what? Like there's a good and there's a best. There's a bad, a good, and a best. And you don't have to choose the best. My mom would give us some freedom, but she would say your life will be better if you choose the best. That's essentially what a lot of these verbs are is James urging these people and saying, be quick to hear. Other translations will say, be quick to listen. Because in our world, it's really easy to hear and not listen. I have to get on my boys about this. Are they in here? Our children? There's one. Uh, In our world, sometimes my kids will hear me. They will not be listening to me. And they have come by that trait, honestly, because when I've got a device in my hand, I can be all about hearing and not listening. I can be all about hearing and not listening. So James says, be quick to hear, be quick to listen. We need to be listeners, not just hearers, right? And then he says, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Or the way my granddad used to say it, good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth and you need to use them proportionally. Or as the Jewish rabbis used to say, or and still say, I believe, that God gave you two ears but one tongue. Your ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but your tongue is surrounded by two rows of teeth to, head it in, to hedge it in and to keep it bounded in. There's good wisdom in that, right? Like, it's good, isn't it? Uh, and then James says, and be slow to anger. We live in a noisy world with we can have busy hearts and we can have a chatty mouth. And then as all that's going on, we're like amping up, amping up, amping up. And our anger builds and builds and then it explodes. And James is saying, look, if, you're, if, if you will be quick to hear, quick to listen, and then slow to speak, the end result of that is that you will be slow to anger. And he's saying like, 
Do this. I'm urging you to this. God has a best for your life. Be slow to anger. And then he goes on, and, and I'm going to dive into some of this today. Just immediately, I want to give you some of what the scripture is saying, and then we're going to talk about how to flesh out. When he says uh, in 21, and uh, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, when I was a kid, we didn't have a ton, but one thing we did have, we had church pants, school pants, and play pants. Did anybody have any of this? The church pants had no patches. Those were legit. Like if we were going to church, you didn't have any holes in your knees. The school pants were the church pants that we hadn't outgrown, uh, but they could have patches. And I remember my mom, like, I'd be like, Mom, this patch is embarrassing me. Why are you putting this patch on my jeans? She's like, well, why do you keep sliding in your new church pants? Like, and maybe if you quit doing that, you would not have to have these goofy-looking patches. And she would always sew the patches on the inside of a jean. I never, I don't know why my mom did that. I think it was to try to learn me a lesson that I didn't learn very fast. The play jeans didn't have patches. Like, we had blown through the patches, and they were the ones that would be like, They'd be like, hey, guys, wait for me. We're going to play. These, and they would be so tight after I hit puberty, especially in like early in puberty. Man, I would just be wearing these tight jeans, couldn't hardly run. They were so tight. That was our play jeans. And in the South, you'd wear your play jeans. And they were play jeans for a specific reason, because the dirt is different. You get that red clay. And when you get that red clay in your pants from sliding and playing baseball with your buddies, it never comes out. And so we would come home sometimes, and the best times in the Georgia heat was like at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you get this amazing rainstorm that feels like you're getting pelted by rocks. And we would go out and play it, and if there were no lightning, and it would be fantastic. And then we would come home covered in mud and red clay and soaking wet, and my mom would meet us at the door. It was like she knew we were coming, and she would say, boy take your clothes off out here in the garage. I was like, mom, people are driving by. They can see me in my whitey tidies if I do this, right? And she would say, I don't care. You're not coming to my house with those wet, nasty clothes on. And we would have to undress down to our underwear right there in the carport and then run to the house and then change and get dry. When James says in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, What he's literally saying is, right now you've got on the dirty clothes of filthiness and it's causing you to not listen and to talk all the time and to be quick to anger. Therefore, take those dirty clothes off and receive with meekness the implanted word, the word which is able to save your souls. Man, there's some stuff in our life that's not evil necessarily, Some of it's wicked and filthy. Some of it's just not the best. And to receive the word well, sometimes we've got to let go of some of that stuff. Some of that stuff we've just got to let go of to receive the word. And I love what James writes here. Remember, these are people who haven't gotten the New Testament yet. And so what does he say? He says, so you can receive the sermon on Sundays? Take off filthiness and rampant wickedness. So you can receive the implanted word, the word of God in you. I don't, you get to a point where you don't have to have sermons anymore. You kind of just got it here and here. 
And that's what James is saying. If he were standing here today, he would say, get in the word, receive the word, hear the word on Sundays, get in the word Monday through Saturday. Some of you for the first time in your life now are beginning to read the Bible for the first time. It's amazing. James would say, get in the word, but even more, let the word get into you. See, what I want as your pastor, I definitely want you in the word, but even more as your pastor, I want the word in you so that you know it and it begins to just ooze out of you all the time. Put away filthiness and wickedness. Take those off like dirty clothes and receive with meekness the word in you. The word written becomes the word on our hearts. And he says, and this is, I can't believe nobody said this stood out to you. I'm actually surprised at this. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He says, be doers of the word. Uh, And he's talking about like looking intently into the word, like, and then getting it so deep down into you that you just walk out and you're like, I got to do that. I got to do that. Let's be real for a moment. How many of you hear a sermon on Sundays and you don't think about it? Like you leave here, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, if you don't think about it again, this would be an embarrassing moment for me, right? Nobody, I'd be like, did you really hear me? I just asked you. How, like, it's easy to hear of a sermon and like we hit the door and we don't think about it again. There's sometimes when I'll get done with my work day at four and I get up in the morning before I start my day, I try to spend time in God's word, have what I call my quiet time. I'll try to get up and do that in the morning. And there's some days where by the time I get home, I'm like, what in the world did I read today? And like, it'd probably be about being patient with my kids. And I remember it like right after I yell at them, or it might be about not being on, like being distracted by worldliness right after I've just looked at some stuff on the news that just makes me so angry that I'm boiling. Like what James is saying is we look into the word, we reflect on it, we look into it, and then we go and we do it. We do it. We become doers of the word. And then he says, become doers of, in verse uh, 25, the one Barb pointed out, of the perfect law. Become doers of the perfect law, that God's word's not lacking. It's perfect, it's ripe, it's mature. And he says, the law of liberty. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I don't have a ton of Bible verses memorized. One of my favorites is Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm, my brothers and sisters, and never let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Christ died to set you free. The Bible is not a collection of rules for how we live our life. The Bible is God's perfect word, his law of liberty. It's his law of liberty. It's his ethic of freedom. And he says, look into it and live it. And then he says, the one who does that, verse 25, will be blessed in his doing. The one who does it will be blessed. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about, you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word blessed means happy or joyful. James would say the one who looks into the perfect law and does it is the one who is happy and joyful. But my favorite sense of the word blessed is the Old Testament sense of blessed. And I think that's what James probably actually has more in mind of here. When a dad was about to die, he would bring his oldest son into the room and he would bless his child. And the dad, and dads, I recommend we do this to our children, actually. The dad, not when you die, hopefully that'll be like regularly, just do this with your kids. The dad would put his hand on the back of the kid's neck, on the back of the kid's head, 
And he would say, Lord, everything that I have, everything that you've given to me, will you give it to this one? And he would bless, the father or the mother would bless a child. Ask God, God, everything that you've got, everything that you have, Lord, will you channel it through me onto this one and then some? And when James says the one who looks into the law, the one who's a doer and not just a hearer, the one who looks into the law of liberty and then puts it into practice, he says that one will be blessed, will have God's hand of affirmation, I believe, on him or her. That's a blessed life. How liberating would it be if you sat down at the end of night, you lay on your pillow and you just felt like God literally put his hand on the back of your neck and said, you did good today. I bless you. I love you. What if in the morning before you got in the car and went to deal with Starro Drive or Memorial or 93 or the tunnel or the stupid ramp onto 93 and toward the, like, what if before that you had five minutes in the bed where you felt God put his hand on you and say, everything I got today, I want you to go do what you know. The implanted word, live it out and let me love and live through you and God bless you. James says the one who does these things will be blessed. Now, why? I think we have slides for this. I want to tell you four reasons why I think we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Like if you need to do anything from this sermon, that would be it today. Like hold your peace, hold your tongue. Ed always says, I got to hold my peace. I love that. Hold my peace. Uh, I don't know if that's P-E-A-C-E or P-I-E-C-E. I probably need to do both at times. It's both. I need to do both at times, right? Like, why do we need to, uh, why do we need to do this? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'm gonna give you four reasons in the scripture. One, because you were loved. You were loved. How do we know that? James says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Before he says, be quick to listen, Slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, you are loved. And the reason that we don't have to talk all the time and and let anger erupt and all that is because you are loved. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. God delights in you. I get that Jesus died for me. I get that Jesus loves me. I get those. I forget that God delights in me. That God looks at me and smiles. That's gospel. That's the gospel. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But God looks at me and delights in me. And he does the same for you. You have nothing to prove. God's love, his delight never hinges on your works, your words, your performance, or your faith. God's delight in you and me hinges completely on Christ. That's gospel. That's gospel. I don't know if you have moments during the week where you feel like a failure. In those moments, God still delights in you just as much as the moments when you get it just right. I have moments where I am a 51 percenter. And I am, well, in my quiet, I'll sit down and be like, dang, I just talked way too much and sucked all the air out of the room. And in that moment, God still delights in me. I have moments where I'll sit down to read the Bible and I'll like vomit out to God all the things I have to say. And never stop to listen to what God wants to say to me. And in those moments, God loves me just and delights in me just as if I had never done anything wrong. He is the unchanging father of lights, 117 says. He never changes and his delight in you will never change. Number two, second reason why we can be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, 
is because it produces righteousness. It produces righteousness. For the anger of man does not produce righteousness, verse 20. Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which can save your souls. To be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger will produce righteousness in us. Now, this is not, there's a word in church that we say it's justification. Paul talks about justification. Justification is a Roman legal word. It means God has declared us not guilty. Not guilty. When God looks at Ed, when God looks at Renee, when God looks at Miles, he says not guilty of their sin if they're in Christ. Not guilty. That never changes. We have the righteousness of Christ given to us. But here's what does change. Our holiness fluctuates. Our holiness fluctuates. Some weeks are good. Some weeks are bad. Some weeks we feel like we got it right. Some weeks we feel like we really drop the ball. Christ given righteousness never wavers, but our holiness changes based on if we put things off and put things on, how we choose to live by faith. When we listen, when we don't speak, when we give the benefit of the doubt, when we bite our tongue, when we don't give vent to our anger, that is producing righteousness in us. It's producing something in us. Um, Howard, I ran a mile the other day in seven minutes and 30 seconds. It was like, and that was in the middle of running a few miles. Now, Mark's like, sucker, that's nothing. Uh, (laughs) Mark's a real runner. I'm not a real runner. Uh, But that's about a minute faster than I could do it two, two months ago. I'm getting quicker. Like I'm watching my miles come down, come down, come down, right? And uh, that's what happens with our holiness. When we practice this, it produces righteousness. God is shaping in our character. He's forming us. He's chiseling us and making us reflect the image of Christ. Um, Number three, you were made. Why be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? Because you were made to not be a hearer only. You were not made to just come to church. I want to tell you that. I think probably a lot of pastors have misled their people and we've been misled by our culture that says you were saved to come to church and be a good person. You weren't. That's part of it. You were saved, you were made to be a doer of God, an image bearer of God in the world. You and I were saved so that when we walk out into the world, out into the week, out into our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, our enemies, that they would look and go, Dang, I don't know what Jesus is like, but if he's like Nicole, I want some of that. If he's like Howard, I want some of that. Like, I've heard the stereotypes, I've heard this, I've heard that. But if Jesus is like them, then I want that. That's why we were made to be doers. This is imperative. Be doers and not hearers only. A lot of what James is saying is urging. This is a command. James to say, if Christ is in you, be a doer and not a hearer only. Now, somebody might say, well, isn't that anti-grace? I think we have a slide for this quote from Dallas Willard. It's so good. Dallas Willard said this, and this is like, take a photo of this. This is so good because the pendulum of church history swings from one extreme to the other. And over the last 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead, on one end, the church has swung to rules Rules, you have to do these things. 
our New England roots are in a Puritan history that was very full of a lot of rules. This is, the pendulum has swung over here to the rules in a lot in church history. Right now in church history, we're not over here. We're actually way over here. And on this end is God loves you no matter what you do, so it doesn't matter what you do. You're loved. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead. You're saved. Go live like hell. Nobody cares. That's a lot of where we are. A lot of the worship songs that are sung in a lot of the churches, Nick referenced some of this today, are just songs like, Jesus is my boyfriend. He thinks I'm awesome. I'm so cool. God, make me feel good about myself. Tell me I'm rad. I'm amazing. And then just smile emoji, heart emoji, smile emoji, fire emoji, da-da-da-da-da. Church history is over here. God loves me. He does everything for me, and he has nothing of me. That's where we are right now in church history. And probably in 100 years, we back over here, and we'll be like, you can't wear that to church. You can't do that, da-da-da. This is how it works. Like, this is how church history works. Moderation is the point that we hit when we're swinging from one extreme to the other. We do this in all things, but right now in church history, we're so far on this grace end that this quote is really powerful. Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude If I think, man, I got to go this week and I got to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, so that God will love me, then I don't understand grace. Earning is that attitude that says, I got to earn this. I got to do this. If I don't do this, God's not going to be happy with me. I got to earn it. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Effort is action. You need to learn to read your Bible. You need to be here on Sundays. You need to steward your money. You need to learn to love the person who cuts you off at traffic and you just want to give them the double-barreled New England salute. Like you got, like, we need to learn to become doers. Effort. God is bringing me back over and over right now to, I've got to love people at the point that I am uncomfortable And there is a part of me that wants to say, but God, you love me, so I'm good either way. And the Lord keeps bringing me back to, no, 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 no. That is a laxed attitude. I want you to put forth the effort to love people who make you uncomfortable. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, he says, you know, doesn't have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. We were made for what? Joe Rigney calls gospel doing. I want to read you a long quote, if I can. And I know that when I read long quotes, it can be almost tiring. But you need to hear this quote. I'm going to try to read it as enthusiastically as I can. And you pinch yourself if you feel yourself nodding off, because this is so good. I shared it on Facebook already this morning, because I think it's valuable if you want to read it later. Gospel doing means that you see yourself in the royal law, the law of scripture, and then you live into that vision You look into that mirror and you do what you see. We look into the word. When James says we look into the mirror and we do it, he's saying you look into the word, look intently, and you do what you see. This is more than just moral exemplarism. It's not simply what would Jesus do. That's often too abstract and distant to be of much use. It's what would I do if I were full of Jesus? 
If I were full of Jesus, what would I do? C.S. Lewis called this good pretending. And it's one of the ways we use our imagination to further our holiness. Bad pretending is just hypocrisy. It's when we pretend to be something we're not. We've seen people do this in church. I've done this a thousand times. Bad pretending. It's pretending to be something we're not. It's when we, a good pretending, C.S. Lewis said, it's when we practice being who we already are in Christ legally and positionally and who we will one day be in Christ morally and perfectly. Good pretending isn't hypocrisy. It's a spirit-led attempt at consistency. Bad pretending is a substitute for reality. Good pretending is when the pretense leads up to the reality. It's what children do when they're pretending to be grown so that they grow up and know how to act when they grow up. And it's what Christians do in our pilgrim condition when we're told to do the word. We're good pretending. Practically speaking, it works like this. Imagine what you'd be like if you really did experience deep gospel renewal. If you really believed that the living God was for you and he would meet all your needs. That you didn't need to use people to get what you want because you know God accepts and approves and embraces you. And so you overflow with this kind of love. Imagine that version of yourself. And then imagine that version of yourself, the one who is free and happy and stable and full of love. Now take that imaginary you and put her or him in the situations of your life. That's good pretending. What would that imaginary gospel you do if you really did love God deeply from the heart? And if you really did love your neighbor sincerely, what would you do? When you have the answer, ask for God's help and then go do it, even if you suspect your motives are mixed. In other words, do the deeds of love even when some of the substance is lacking. Don't wait for your motives to be fully pure. Repent of impure motives, sinful preferences, and spiritual apathy. Look at yourself in the mirror of the gospel, the liberating law of King Jesus. See what you are in light of the good news. Now, don't walk away and forget. Remember, persevere in that vision of yourself in Christ. Walk away and do what you saw, even if you don't fully feel what you saw. Feelings are liars. Do what you believe. Live out who God says you are. The most true thing about you is not what you feel, not what you say, not what you do, not what the world says of you. It's who God says we are in Christ. And wrapping it up, and James says, you will be blessed in your doing. That's what it means to be a doer of the word for the rest of your life. Be a doer, a gospel doer of the word. And then finally, let me, um, including listening, Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. The last one, let me share with you, the last why. It is worthless religion to be all talk. It's worthless religion to be all talk, all reacting, all anger, all what my grandma called stewing. I don't know, is that a a New England phrase? Like, my grandma would be stewing. She got this because this is what she did with our dinner on Sunday. She would often cook it all day on Saturday. When my grandmother made ribs, she would boil them all day Saturday until they fell off the bone when she pulled them out of the pot. And then she would put them on a pan, soak those things in barbecue sauce. And then uh, on Sunday, right after church, we'd go and eat it and you'd pick up the bone and the meat would fall off. The meat had, in a sense, stewed. It had boiled. So often what we're doing is we're stewing in our raw, ungodly emotions and our anger. We're letting it simmer, cook, 
low and tenderizing it, and we need to put it to death. It is worthless religion to be all anger, all reacting, all talk, all stewing. R. Kent Hughes calls so many of our conversations dialogues of the deaf. Have you ever talked with somebody and it's like, did they even hear me? Were they even interested in what I had to say? Dialogues of the deaf. It's word vomit. We can become, we can even do this. I can even do this with God. I'll get my journal out and I'll give my list. I'm writing down my prayers, my sins, and like I'll hold it up. You remember the Tom Hanks face and A League of Their Own? So you might remember this movie when he's like trying not to snap and he's got this impatient Tom Hanks face. Like I can do that with God. Like I'm just like, God, do you see my list? I'm so impatient and I can't just sit there with him. I'll go and just word vomit to him or I get with people and we just, we're like dialogues of the deaf. And so you may say, J.D., are you talking about with people, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? Are you talking about with God, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger? And the answer is yes. James is talking about both. Let God and his word and people be the spot where we're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. There's more, but I'm going to stop there. Here's what I want you to stoke up this week. I want to encourage you to stoke these up this week. Uh, I want to remind you, first of all, if you're a Christian, if Christ is in you, when you are talking with someone and listening, you are listening to someone for whom Jesus died, who matters fiercely to him. Sometimes we're talking, we're acting out of insecurity, we're not listening, and we forget, like, this person matters so much to God that he sent his son to die for them. And, um, and for everyone, I think that we ought to be listeners to God because I love what Jeremiah 33, three says, it says, call to me, God says, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and unspeakable things you don't even know about. Man, we need to be listeners to God because he has something to say to you. God has something to say to you and we need to be listeners to one another because people matter. And if we are Christ followers and they are Christ followers, their words matter to us and our words matter to them. So stoke up this week. I want to encourage you. Here's your homework. I want you to take time to listen this week. I want you to listen in four ways. I want you to carve some time to listen in four ways this week. One, I want to encourage you to listen for a moment to God's word. All right. I want you to grab a Bible and just listen. Just If it's James, read James. If it's something else, read it. And just take a few moments, at, at least one time this week, to just listen. God, I'm here. I'm listening. Say what you will. I'm just listening. All right? Not a checkbox. I want to encourage you this week to take a moment to listen to God in church. If, you, if you're a journaler, I want you to, like... Write down something that you hear. Listen to God in church. It may not be through the church service. You may be like, J.D.'s sermon was terrible. It was a dud. But man, I was encouraged when Scott said this. It meant the world when Ed hugged my neck. That was encouraging. Listen to God speaking through the actions and words of one another. Listen this week in your circle. How many people in your life their voice sounds like God. I got a few people, David Butler, some of you know David Butler. The Holy Spirit sounds a lot like David Butler to me. When David Butler speaks, that's like, 
I stop and listen. Listen to what God may be saying to you this week through your circle, through your parents, through your kids, <laughs> through your coworkers, through family, through friends. It may be if there's not many Christians in your circle that you need to expand your circle. And then finally, listen to what God would say to you this week in his world. Take a moment this week to just go for a walk. If you live in Charlestown and you have cement trucks and motorcycles and fireworks, you may have to like work your way toward the water away from the cars or somewhere. Like try to find a space this week where you can just listen to God in his world. Um, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Here's what I want you to burn down. Burn down, let burn out hearing and moving on. Our world is so fast. Here's my morning. My morning is usually, up, oh, get to page three, check this app. Okay, saw that. Good. Red Sox won. All right. Um, now let me jump over to this one right here. Let me read this. Okay. Uh, that news site only tells me half the story. Now let me flip over to this news site, read the other. I'll take those two news uh, sets of news stories, divide them in two, and that might be the news. I'm thinking between those two, the news is somewhere in the middle. Then I'll jump over. Okay. What's the weather going to be today? Oh, it's July 2021. It's going to be rainy, of course. Okay. Uh, you know, like then the next one, like I've got four or five websites, jump to them, boom. My day has started with noise and it does not stop for the rest of the day. I want to encourage you this week, maybe burn down, let burn out some of the noisiness. Maybe don't put your phone or your device in your bedroom. Be a doer of the word. I don't know what you need to do, but don't start your day with noise. Try to condition yourself in being a doer this week to not hear and move on to do checkbox church where it's like, I showed up, to not be a 51 percenter where you take 51% of the oxygen from the room. Eliminate some noise, eliminate some volume, eliminate some distractions, even eliminate your devices. Here's a silly one that I do, just as an encouragement, just to make it practical today. I keep my phone and my devices the volume down almost as low as possible. Natalie's like, how do you hear anyone talk to you when she grabs my phone? She hates it. The last thing I need in my life, I struggle with anger, is a Charlie Brown teacher on the other side, like wah, 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 every time I'm on the phone. I keep my screen light down. I just don't need that aggressive light. If there's a sermon in this series I struggle with, it's this one. I'm angry. I'm going to confess a sin to you. This is the sin I struggle with right now is anger. The world is making me angry. I'm mad at, I'm mad at our country. I'm mad at, I'm mad at the uncertainty of our economy. I'm mad at injustice. I'm mad at the traffic in our neighborhood. I'm mad that the people who've lived in this city and in this neighborhood for 100 years can't afford to live here anymore. I'm mad that when I walk down the street for every 100 people I see, 97 of them don't know Jesus and would step out into eternity away from Christ, apart from Christ. I'm mad that I don't control my money. I feel guilty that I don't give more away. I just had this, I told Natalie, I've told her two or three times lately, I just feel this low-grade stewing anger all the time just mad. 
There was a part of me that didn't even feel like I should preach this message. I wanted to ask Ed to do it. I'm angry. And I need Jesus and the gospel and the word of God and you to help me put that off and be quicker to listen, slower to speak, slower to anger.